I was teaching a class the other day and I had a guest speaker ask my students, they were asking them, you know, you said men can't be emotional, right? Now we're talking about examples. They were doing a little exercise and the speaker said, well, what's, what's an emotion that you feel like socially men are allowed to have? And they all said anger almost at once and couldn't think of anything else. And I find that telling um, that the sort of default masculinized reaction to anything a lot of times can be anger. And I don't find it then surprising when these folks are commuting online that anger is an outcome and that anger is also a method. So I'm Dr. Krista Hodap. I'm an associate teaching professor. My main areas of research are on masculinity and gender. I put out a book on the men's rights movement and analyze it in terms of philosophy and uh, political theory and also gender identity theory. This all really starts with an anecdote. In my first you know, two or three years at my university, a student approached me and asked me if I would be willing to act as a faculty advisor for a feminist club she wanted to start. And I said that was fine and I'd be happy to do so. So several students worked together to get the club up and running and they had discussion groups and it seemed to be going well. And I couldn't make every meeting, but I came to, you know, some here and there, give them a little autonomy, but it came to my attention the leader of the club came to me, honestly, almost in tears. And she said, there are a bunch of MRAs coming to our meetings and they're ruining the meetings. And in my, in my ignorance at the time, I asked her what an MRA was. And that is how this started. So I spent about, I would say, a good year of my life uh, monitoring a feminism club, kind of trying to follow the rules, but shut them down. I had to contact admin about this sort of passive aggressive harassment that we perceived happening. I ended up having to seriously police our Facebook pages and online platforms for the clubs because those gentlemen were getting on there. And I mean, for lack of a better term, they were trolling all the women in the club. And it wasn't just women in the club. There were all sorts of gender identified people involved, but it was this consistent sort of trolling. And the more frustrating I found that, the more interested I got in sort of seeing where this was all coming from. And when I saw where it was coming from, I was pretty shocked. And I think the real shock for me was I'm someone who's always really deeply cared about masculinity issues and concerns about masculinity. And when I see this sort of approach, I find it so disappointing because I think sometimes they raise issues that are important. And the problem I have is what they do with those issues once they get sort of started. Um, so at the time, I was unfamiliar with the term. So I started doing some casual online research and it grew into something a lot bigger. And I was speaking about it at conferences and sort of trying to sort it out philosophically. And I was contacted by Lexington to possibly put forth a manuscript, which obviously I did. 
So the starting point for me was really sort of kind of going through all those online avenues we previously discussed, um, kind of looking through the manosphere and seeing what was there. And I think what struck me was that one particular group seemed to be uh, protesting the fact that they don't think people take them seriously as a political activist group. And so my strategy and methodology when researching this and writing this was to take them at their word. Um, so take them seriously, analyze them seriously. And the group I have in mind are explicitly identified as men's rights movement activists, MRAs. Um, and I specifically focus on a voice for men. They are kind of self-identified as the spot for men's rights, serious activism. They're responsible for conferences, gatherings, things like that. And the website actually is fairly organized. So when you look at their motivations, I would say one of the most important things to keep in mind is I know that they make terms all the time. I know that they've sort of, grad some folks have sort of graduated from the idea of the red pill. But I think that even if someone doesn't identify as a red pillar that is an MRA, I think that the concept that the red pill sort of reflects back to us is important to keep in mind. And what these folks seem to really think and what really motivates them is that they have some aspect of the truth that the rest of us do not have. We will not, for, for whatever reason, we don't see it, we don't want to see it, we ignore it. So essentially, right, just like in the Matrix, they kind of encourage you to go through the rabbit hole because in their minds, I think a lot of this is inverse. So when you look at folks from A Voice for Men and sites like that, the argument that's fairly prevalent is that while men, qua men, are accused of being the oppressors in society. That is actually false. Men are not the oppressors. Men are, in fact, the oppressed. And the oppression of men is egregious and it is widespread. It is not directly in, in totality caused by feminism, but furthered and enacted by feminism. So you'll get kind of different reactions from some of them. Some of them kind of is like, you know, feminism does this on purpose. A lot of them, because um, they like to undercut the intelligence level of feminists. So they'll say, basically, feminists don't know what they're talking about because they're sort of mindless dupes recreating like masculine oppression for the machine over and over. Um, I, don't, I don't know who's in charge in their mind. That's kind of unclear. Um, so, and their evidence for this sorts of stuff is chivalry, the alleged abuse of fathers and custody systems, the draft, military, uh, and violence. And it's important also to keep in mind that they say this over and over is that they are talking about oppression simply qua men. So they see gender as the primary source of oppression. Um, I have several sources in the book where they talk about the fact that like race would be a secondary oppressor, that the primary mode of oppression would be masculinity, right? So that seems to be the issue here. One thing I like to keep in mind that I found out, I think it's something I was always sort of passively aware of, um, was especially in second wave feminism in the 70s, that there was this sort of accompanying men's rights aspect to feminism. 
and I do mention this in the introduction, right? So I think what's really kind of fascinating is the ways in which there's overlap between this sort of historical stance that we see coming out of folks like Warren Farrell into what's presently going on. So when you look at something like that, you see sort of similar thought patterns happening. So, and this, they, they don't like when I say this, but I'm going to say it again, is that they make these sort of symmetry arguments. It's the same thing that happens with people who are making problematic arguments, I think, about race, right? So if there is some action or situation impacting a person of one race, if that same thing impacts a person of another race or another gender, then the harm is the exact same. So they think, well, if men experience some sort of gender issue, right, and that looks something like what happens to women, then the harm inflicted on men would be equitable to women. And I think at this juncture, right, we we should be aware just in terms of intersectionality that those arguments are far, far too, they just fail. (laughs) They're not complex enough to capture identity. But I see those thought patterns coming back over and over. So it's really interesting to watch them sort of take traditionally sort of feminist frameworks and flip them on their heads in in terms of argument. So I think that's one thing that they have in common with the more historical roots is the complaints. I mean, if you read Warren Farrell's work from the 80s, it's not radically different from some of the complaints I currently see online coming from the MRAs. The distinction, I think, is the internet. So once online communication becomes involved, you see it kind of explode. And I think that has a lot to do with accessibility. Um, Folks, you know, you can find people who want to talk to you about this. You just pop on Reddit and see who's there. And, you know, we also know that groupthink is real. There's evidence to believe that groupthink is worse in online platforms because it is really easy to filter your life. So it's kind of unsurprising. And then also the sort of interventions that some of these folks support, whether it's trolling, doxing, things like that, it's super easy to do. Just from your home computer, you can do it from your phone and you can do it anonymously and it gets to be sort of like a blanket activity. So I'm not sure, like I said, that the that I, I think there's more branches because I think the internet has more folks talking and they make these sort of niche groups like, oh, I'm going to be a big toe, but I'm also kind of an MRA. You know, you see that happening. But like I said as well, just the sheer number, finding each other, finding ways to talk about this and finding ways to enact what they see as sort of interventions is has been really changed by online platforms. I think some of these men too report feeling, you know, isolation. Um, they're frustrated. You know, they feel frustrated in some ways and whatever the source of that frustration is, whatever aspect of masculinity it's sort of coming from. I think, you know, this is just human nature, right? Like if you're experiencing something that's having some sort of impact on your self-worth or your identity and there's a frustration, when you find people that share that with you, it can become very reassuring. And that's where you get this sort of interesting problem occurring because at some point I do think men should talk about masculinity issues it's just the direction once again can can become troubling because what I sense 
out of all of these groups is a lot of anger. And I think there's a lot of ways to unpack the issue of anger and masculinity and men's rights. I've seen very little that I would take as sort of an authentic rejection of essentialist gender. So I've seen folks say, I, you know, I reject this essentialist sort of conception of gender, and yet they continue to use it. So it's really unclear to me what they mean uh, when that sort of thing happens. And I suspect that they're sort of grappling with the notion that, yeah, we don't have an appropriate healthy replacement accessible to these folks in terms of masculinity, like what would a good masculinity look like? How does that work? They don't really have access to that kind of conversation. On the other hand, I see a lot of nods to essentialism. And I think what's really kind of notable about these folks is their one of their sort of favorite things to do is they adopt this cloak of intellectualism, uh, especially the folks that I looked at so they're they're very invested in presenting themselves as intellectuals of some kind. Um, they like to talk about, especially philosophy, which doesn't surprise me, philosophy, theory, things like that. And they consider themselves, you know, very good with rhetoric, good with logic. And they'll say this sort of stuff over and over, you know, like, Feminists are irrational, make bad arguments. I make good arguments as men are wont to do. And I think part of the essentialist issue and the intellectualism issue is that they sort of oftentimes I've noted them falling back on biological essentialism in terms of sort of scientific arguments or what they consider to be scientific arguments. I think a pretty common thread that I've observed is referred to evolutionary psychology um, about these sorts of things, which I always find sort of a dangerous game. Um, evolutionary psychology can, can go bad on pretty quickly. It can be done pretty irresponsibly. Not to say it's not occasionally done well, but it can go bad on you. So this sort of like, I would characterize it as pseudoscientific justification based on evolutionary scientific grounds for why men are the way they are. Um, I see that rhetoric quite a bit. So there seems to be two competing sorts of camps, and one is masculinity. I'm going to challenge some of this, but there's no replacement for it, and this sort of frustration. And then the camp that I'm a little more familiar with is the folks saying, no, gender is essential in some way. Here's an argument for it whatever that argument may be, like I said, often evolutionary psychology, and then saying, and here's the problem. If this is the way that I am, and this is inevitably the way that I am, then your refusal to recognize me on those terms and deny me certain forms of recognition is a moral harm. That becomes a political harm. That becomes all sorts of harms they kind of imagine, right? And I found that to be more common. Um, not across the board, but a lot of the folks I looked at from A Voice for Men seem to be more in that camp. What's really important to consider when talking about oppression is being very careful about the distinction between harm and legitimate oppression. So it's quite entirely possible, as feminist authors have pointed out, to be miserable 
And that might not count as oppression because we need to be very careful about the ways in which structure and power are distributed when we talk about oppression to distinguish it politically and morally from other sorts of harms. And that doesn't mean other types of harms aren't important. They're just not of a certain type. So when we think about things like masculinity, I think that it's just absolutely undeniable that masculinity is harmful. And I accept the Belk's framework, which is to say, look, if you have a society that is based on domination, hierarchy, and all these sorts of limiting systems of identification and you know power differentials, then it's going to widely distribute harms and also cause oppression on the basis of intersectional aspects of identity. So this is not to say, right, that men cannot be oppressed. They most certainly are. And I think one of the more useful ways to think about this is that I have a colleague named Tommy Curry, who's a philosopher, and he works on Black masculinity. And he talks about the very unique and oppressive systems in play in Black men's lives in the United States, and that's invaluable. And I also think we can talk about men who are oppressed in terms of economic conditions and things like that, or men who are members of the LGBTQ community. That all works for me. That's intersectional, and that's important. So the distinction to think about here is that this is absolutely not what most of the MRAs I am familiar with are arguing for. They are arguing, once again, that men are oppressed, qua men, right, just as men, and that that's the primary sort of locus of oppression. And then they sort of list these harms that come as a result of being men. And I think some of these issues are quite serious. However, the idea that these sorts of issues can be sort of easily explained away by saying, well, that's because men are oppressed by women is, is problematic. I mean, first of all, a lot of this is really incredibly heteronormative. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. They, they give some nods to what they call gay men. Um, I guess that's the only sort of sexual orientation they talk about, but they kind of give a nod to it, but they don't say much because they say gay men are oppressed primarily as men as well. What they call their homosexuality is secondary. So that's something I've seen in several locations, particularly on a voice for men. But the idea is that there are some issues that are important. So they point out things like men and fatherhood and the ways in which we frame fatherhood. Um, and I find that important. I think that it's important to talk about making men into co-parents and expecting men to know how to parent and teaching them important skills, teaching men how to provide better emotional support and labor and also be open to receiving it. Um, so I think that those are important and complex conversations to have. And the reaction I'm seeing from folks like in the men's rights movement is generally that Women are out to either often, not always, but often are guilty of paternity fraud. They seem to think that women are lying about who the biological fathers of their children are to get money. When I tell them this is untrue, they just say I'm wrong. So I guess we just disagree on how to read statistics. Um, and I, I can't get any headway, so I don't think that they're listening. 
And then things like custody issues. And occasionally there are problematic custody issues with men and fathers, but an overwhelming majority of the cases, the things they're sort of pointing to aren't at the centerpiece or settled very quickly in court systems. So it's something to keep in mind. Um, So they kind of tend to either overblow the problem or they'll pick one study that doesn't particularly have the best selective group and kind of really hyper-focus on numbers, which I take as a symptom of of the kind of intellectualism they they promote themselves having uh, because in the Western world, we like numbers. Numbers tell the truth, so we think, but we also know that that's not always true. Um, They'll also point to other harms, right? The issue of violence is really important um, in talking about things like incarceration and men in prison. And I think that that is a really important issue. I find it alarming that they don't address it sort of intersectionally because we know what type of men are ending up in prison and they are not wealthy white men in the United States for the most part. That is not who's crowding our system. Um, And they also point to the fact that it seems unfair that men are more likely to receive the death penalty than women. Um, That might be true. I'm not sure that's a sign of oppressing men. and I guess that would really be contingent on your view of the death penalty. So I don't, I don't know how to always respond to these concerns. Um, a big one for them is the draft in the United States that women weren't allowed to be in the draft. And I always found it kind of fascinating that they're like, well, see, this is evidence that women are oppressing us because we have to go to war and be fodder and they just sit at home. What I find fascinating is that the men that the people that did not want women in the draft in the United States or the folks that didn't want women in combat positions were men in the military. So I'm not sure how we get to the conclusion that that's a sign of women oppressing you. So they sort of pick issues, right? Like I think the draft is important. I think incarceration is important. I think issues in violence are important. But also this whole idea that it's women oppressing you seems bizarre. And in terms of violence as well, I mean, we know that men overwhelmingly are committing violence, certain types of violence in the United States, but we also know that men are more likely to be killed by other men than anyone else. So it's not just an issue of men killing women or harming women, it's an issue of men harming one another, especially in terms of gun violence in the United States alone. And I think there's this really problematic refusal to sort of engage in wider issues Because if we're going to talk about any of these things, I think it's extraordinarily limiting to sort of default, right, to the singular view of oppression and claim that it's just simplistic gender oppression by some sort of society or women at large, you know, to sort of take advantage of and damage men, because the the wider picture tells a bigger story. And I don't think it often qualifies as oppression based sheerly on masculinity. And I also don't know that just looking at some imagined binary gender system where it's us, you know, against them also captures the complexity of the issues and concerns that they raise. So, like I said, a lot of them are legitimate issues. It's that the analysis is sort of hopelessly limited, in my opinion, because it's just not complexly engaged. I have a very good friend of mine who's a colleague that works a lot on uh, fascism and white supremacism in the U.S. and especially in online platforms. And 
she talks to me about the fact she says, yeah, you can see it because some of these folks sort of claim to have nothing to do with the other ones, but you can kind of see the principles and the simplistic binary understandings of culture, relationships, and power happening in both. So I think that there's a shared framework that has a lot to do with what I just shared in terms of oppression versus harm and things like that. So when you encounter, and this is from a completely U.S. standpoint, but when I encounter sort of racism in the United States, there's this interesting sense that I think I see coming out of the MRA in terms of gender, right? So there's this parallel kind of conversation going where I think you see in white supremacy the sense that somebody is out to get you, nobody will listen to you, and it is unfair what those people, whomever they might be, generally non-white folk of some type, are doing to you. And there's also a sense of taking something away. Um, I'm sure you've seen things in the United States, you know, they're taking our jobs, they're taking our resources. They took my this, you know, when we had affirmative action coming out, people were often complaining like, well, I don't want that person taking my job. It's not fair. And I find that language in both camps really telling this idea that someone is taking something from you that you do not own. So there's this sense of sort of entitlement, you know, that people are encroaching on you and taking something. And I also just think that it's a symptom of resistance to change. I mean, things are changing. I hope, um, I, I hope things are changing. It's race relations are changing, our sense of identity is changing, our sense of gender on the whole is changing. And I think what you're seeing in the United States, and especially when we have presidential candidates using turns of phrase like make America great again. I always ask my students what again means, um, because I'm not sure (laughs) for whom America was so great in the past. So, you know, there's always this kind of 1950s idealism. And I'm like, yeah, and that was also the decade in which we were shooting water hoses at children of color trying to go to school, right? So I think there's this sort of reliance upon nostalgia. You hear this kind of the good old days, right? Before somebody ruined all this for me, things were better. And you see this in a lot of people's work. Uh, Susan Faludi's book, Stift, talks about this as well. These men saying like, hey, you guys told me if I did X, Y, and Z, I went to school, I got a good job, everything would be fine and it's not okay. And that's not fair. And so you get this sort of backward looking consciousness, this nostalgia driven thing. You get this sort of blaming, right? It has to be because the feminists are at it again, right? or these folks are at it again, or someone came and took the job, or someone took something from me. And you see this rhetoric going on and on and on. And what I see is a couple of qualities, which is entitlement, um, lack of resources to create sort of a new self-identity, and refusal to engage with progress. So you'll see these kind of parallel thoughts patterns I think happening in in both groups and then what's really interesting is when they start to overlap because if you had that kind of framework in place anyway 
it's unsurprising to slip from one to the other. So I think what's interesting is if you see a group like A Voice for Men, they explicitly say they're not racist. They want nothing to do with racism and that they are completely intolerant of that in their site or groups. And I find what's really interesting about them is that they don't seem to understand that some of their like language and their lack of concern for race relations is in and of itself passively racist. So it's not explicit, but it's not treated with the kind of analytic concern it should be. And I think it's interesting. They also sort of rely on the fact that they might have, and I'll, I'll use, you know, the colloquial turn of phrase, like, well, there's a black guy that writes for us. So clearly there's no problem here. And we all know how cheap that sort of explanation is. So you'll see, you'll see things like that. And I think like a voice for men sees that sort of lack of dedicated racism as evidence for being taken seriously. Right. They're like, well, we're not them. (laughs) We're the good guys in this. Right. Which is an interesting sort of position to put oneself in. And then you see sites that I think are really kind of more extreme. Um, I think the classic example would be, and this isn't as prevalent now, but Return of Kings was like this. So Return of Kings is run by a man who has multiple sexual assault charges um, internationally as well. And he, his site, I think when you open the page, I, I try not to go there, but when you used to open the page, it would basically say, no, like women and there'd be a slur for homosexuals inserted. Don't comment here. And there would be pages of things like women are terrible, but black women are the worst. So they like wove right this racism and homophobia and everything else. And you can see where it just slides further and further to like extreme sort of neo-Nazi rhetoric. And I think it's not a super difficult question to address why when you see these rallies and the folks involved here in the United States that the rallies themselves are overrun with men. Women are there. We have women that are supremacists. I get it. But the quote unquote leaders, you know, and the folks that are really visible are generally men. So you see this sort of sliding back and forth in terms of identity, commitments, and just thought patterns that I see like the slippage between the two is not uncommon or surprising. So I think the problem with having any sort of momentum out of a movement like this is that they don't have any suggestions for strategies that would create helpful change. So most of the strategies that I've seen recommended, and I'm sure I've missed something just to give them their due, but the general sort of attitude is either A, society is so toxic and women are so broken that I will in turn just break society. It's hopeless. There's nothing I can do. The other sort of attitude is the MGTOW men going their own way attitude, which is this is so awful and oppressive to me that I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk away. So they have a program for social removal. They have multiple steps. Um, I won't go through those for you, but they have a website with directions if anyone wants to look. Um, So overall, they seem to have a lot of recommendations for disruption or rejection. And I haven't seen a coherent worldview emerge in terms of what they think 
might be constructive or healthy, et cetera. So I'm not sure what kind of progress they can make in that respect. In another respect, I do see men's groups that I think are doing really constructive things. And I think that they can be incredibly helpful sorts of areas for men to go to that have these concerns and want to deal with things in a constructive, communal sort of way. And most of the times when I see these things happening, these are local community groups. And there is a group like this in my own community that I work pretty closely with. And I find them incredibly impressive. And they talk about a lot of the issues that MRAs are talking about. And their recommendations are generally communication, constructive, challenging gender norms. And they talk a lot about creating a masculinity, um, what it might look, they don't know yet, right? But what it might look like for them and maybe for others uh, when masculinity is healthy and when masculinity is a good thing. And they're also very supportive of the notion that gender is not essential. They're very welcoming to trans folks and all members of the LGBTQ community. So when I say there's no momentum, I think that that method, the method that we're seeing at a lot of these MRA groups who operate primarily online, doesn't have a lot of momentum to change much. I think groups like the one I'm referring to have a lot of momentum. So that would be a recommendation. And it gives me a little positive hope. The other thing I would mention though too is that I think the problem is is that there's plenty of momentum for them to continue this behavior. So I think that at this point, as we mentioned earlier, these sort of back and forth they have, the support they feel like they're getting from some of these communities, the outlet, this kind of rage release and I mean anger, you know, getting it out makes you feel better and it also makes you feel powerful. And if they don't feel powerful, then they might feel a little more powerful when they're kind of unleashing all this online and sharing rage. And I think until we find better outlets and things like that um, and really get better at addressing things, it's the same thing with racism, right? It's really hard to stop people from doing it if it's rewarding. And I think unfortunately right now, it is rewarding for people who are frustrated and people who are feeling disenfranchised in some way or feeding into fear culture or panicking, I think that it's kind of hard to talk them out of it right away. Right, right away. But I think that we do have some hope in terms, especially of masculinity, because I'm seeing as much as I see the problems, I'm seeing some really good work being done. And I hope to see that continue. But I think for right now, um, they're, they're going to stick around and given the fact that they don't really have any discernible kind of socio-political goals, then they can't really see themselves as failures either. So there's nothing to sort of temper that momentum, right? Like, well, we're not getting anything done. Well, you never wanted to get anything particularly done in the first place. So they have permission to kind of continue.